Hi, everyone. This is Shane Petkowitz. Welcome to another episode of Zero. Again, we're um, in the in this season, we're focusing on the latest reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the impacts of greenhouse gases, namely carbon dioxide, although there are a few others that are being emitted into the atmosphere at a rate of billions of tons uh, a year into the atmosphere massive waste product, uh, waste byproduct, and uh, obviously having significant impacts on our day-to-day our -day lives even today. And we'll continue to do so if we don't drastically uh, change our, our, our uh, behaviors. And so the first couple of episodes uh, are gonna are wrapping up now. We've been focusing on physical science and the basis of climate change. So really trying to understand how are these greenhouse gases impacting climate around the world? How are they impacting climate variability? How are they impacting oceans? And on this particular episode, we're going to be focusing on how uh, climate change is impacting West African climates, in particular, the role that it's impacting uh, the monsoons uh, that are a key driver for, for um, the weather patterns there and climate patterns. Uh, and so in particular, we're going to be having uh, Dr. Aida Dionyang. Uh, she is based out of Senegal and has worked for over 20 years at the Meteorological Service of Senegal uh, in a number of roles, actually. So she's been involved, been involved in research, as well as research operations, as well as evaluating how to deliver climate and weather information to the uh, people and communities and states of Senegal. She's also been very involved in IPCC as an author, both on the synthesis report, as well as uh, group one uh, chapters, uh, sections. And uh, she really speaks at length to her work uh, and what she hopes to see, um, what she's seeing, what uh, was being, uh, what is being seen in the climate changing patterns uh, on the monsoons, how it's impacting agricultural and policy decisions, and what she likes to see moving forward. So, hope you enjoyed the episode. First of all, the West Africa weather and climate is driven by the West African monsoon. A monsoon generally refers to a seasonal transition of atmospheric circulation and um, precipitation in response to the annual cycle of solar insulation and distribution of energy. The West African monsoon arises from the difference uh, in temperature between the Sahara in the north and the Gulf of Guinea, ocean in the south. This region extends to a, over vast and contrasting geographical region from the equator to the margin of the Sahara and from the Atlantic coast uh, to inland, uh, yeah, in, in, in central North Africa. The West African monsoon actually is determinant for the for many aspects of life in this region and of course for Senegal including the fact that uh, agriculture is rain fed mostly rain fed also pastoralism especially nomadic breeding practice is also uh, I mean it's also dependent on rain and we had also health impact is, for example, uh, the way malaria spreads depend of the, the rain. We have also other, we could have also other waterborne disease outbreaks. 
uh, it's also important for energy and water management. And given that um, variation in the seasonal rainfall amount and also in the occurrence of weather systems can therefore have high impact consequences and on livelihoods and on the economy in general, particularly in the Sahel. Now in the West Africa, you have the West Africa and the Sahel lies in the northern part of West Africa and also in the northern part of Central Africa. And in the Sahel, uh, rainfall within a year uh, falls uh, in two to four months. So yeah, if there is a variability, it's, it's, uh, it could have a huge impact. Um, as you may know, I, um, I was um, involved in the sixth assessment cycle of IPCC as lead author in working group one. The working group one is the working group which assessed the physical science. And I also I was also involved in the synthesis report as member of the core writing team. So IPCC working group one uh, has assessed the observed and projected uh, future changes in the West African monsoon. Uh, the West African monsoon actually experienced a relatively wet period in the mid 20th centuries and this was followed abruptly by a very dry period between um, late 60s to, to late 90s uh, with rainfall deficit up to 60% in the northern part of the Sahel compared to the to the to the long term mean and this has been partly, actually, this deficit has been partly attributed to human activities, not climate change, but um, uh, through the uh, the cooling effects of the aerosols, the particle, the pollution factor in the northern Atlantic. Uh, actually, the monsoon is driven by changes in the adjacent ocean and also as ocean. And since the late 90s, there is a partly recovery of the rainfall, even though since the mid 80s, an upward trend of the rainfall was noticed. But we have now less uh, special coherence and difference between the east and the, the west, most western part. And also a lot of variability, particularly for the uh, seasonal amounts for the um, uh, monsoon onset and cessation. And also there is a high occurrence within the rainy season of dry spells or wet spells or heavy precipitation. And the recovery of the monsoon has been attributed partly to the combined effect of um, the increasing greenhouse gas emission, greenhouse gas concentration, sorry, and decreasing of uh, of uh, aerosols I mentioned earlier over Europe and North America. This is what has been observed. But in terms of uh, projection, future rainfall in the uh, monsoon region will uh, will go in opposite direction between the the eastern and central parts of the Sahel and the western parts. So, 
uh, increase of rainfall, global increase of rainfall is um, projected for eastern and uh, central part of the Sahel, and general decrease of rainfall is um, projected for the uttermostern part, including Senegal, and also part of the Guinea coast along the coast, along the West African coast. It's interesting that you've identified these two competing drivers, right? There's obviously just greenhouse gases emissions is, is one aspect, but then also aerosols in other parts of the world are having an impact as well. That's that's fascinating. So as now that we know, well, as we're getting a better understanding about the impacts, different impacts on weather patterns and monsoons in, in Western Africa, and the fact that <clears throat> there is a significant dependent, well, generally everywhere, but uh, rainfall has a huge impact on agriculture, on pastoralism and other aspects of, of those um, those countries. What do you project or what are we starting to see in terms of those impacts? You know, that there seems to be a lot of variability. What are we seeing now on the ground? Yeah, I, I've just mentioned uh, changes in, in precipitation, but also even Across Africa, there are common changes, particularly regarding mean temperature and hot extreme. They will increase, and the increase also will will continue uh, throughout the twenty first century. And when we talk about hot extreme, uh, we do not forget also increase in the heat index. It's a parameter that takes into account both humidity and temperature, and it is a special threat for. Uh, many parts of Africa where uh, temperature above 30 degrees is, is common, but also even for regions with uh, relatively low temperature with high humidity, that could be also a threat in West and Central Africa particularly. And also we have regional sea level rise that has increased at a higher rate uh, than the global mean, which is uh, 20 centimeters since uh, 1900. Yes, the increase have been uh, higher over the past decades over around around Africa. And what is important to note that it's regardless um, of the greenhouse gas emission scenarios we are going to take, mean sea level rise, mean sea level will continue to rise globally and around Africa for decades and even centuries because there are already some processes that have that have been going on that we couldn't stop, like melting of glaciers, and uh, yeah, and sea level rise due to the fact that the ocean uh, is warming also, and this will contribute to increase in frequency and severity of coastal flooding, coastal erosion, particularly uh, along sandy coasts such as the one we have around the Gulf of Guinea, and also. We note that uh, in Africa, particularly in West Africa, uh, many industries and cities are localized in coastal areas. Um, and also in heavy precipitation, uh, it is important also to know that, uh, a fact to know that uh, regarding heavy precipitation, IPCC has considered a period uh, from 1950 to present, and due to 
lack of uh, publicly available data, we couldn't um, have a clear picture of uh, observed change in many parts of Africa. But what is clear is that uh, in terms of projection, heavy precipitation events are projected to increase almost everywhere in Africa from 1.0 degrees Celsius of global warming, even in region uh, projected to experience drought, such as uh, uh, Northern Africa, Southern Africa, Madagascar, and Auto Western uh, West Africa. And also we have tropical cyclones in Southeast part of Africa uh, with an increase of average wind speed and associated uh, uh, heavy precipitation projected to increase. And also the proportion of um, uh, cyclone of category four and five. All this <laughs> physical change will have impact on livelihoods. Actually, climate change has impacted human and natural system across the world. But however, uh, those who have generally least contributed to climate change are the most vulnerable and acutely felt the impact of climate change. That is the case for many parts of Africa. Adverse uh, effects across region, including Africa, include uh, food production and water availability, change in food production and water availability. Uh, globally, we have estimated that half of the global population have experienced several water scar scarcity for at least part of the year particularly in Africa and Asia. Uh, in Africa also, we have assessed that there will be a, a decrease of, there is already a decrease of uh, uh, agricultural yield and, and food production due to excessive heat, dry condition, to wet conditions, or high variability of, of rainfall. And also a decrease of uh, fish yield, uh, particularly in the tropical parts of Africa due to deep sea migration of species or migration towers high latitude. This is just a case, an example for food production and water availability. We have also example in health and well-being, uh, example on effects on in cities and settlements and infrastructure, and also change in ecosystem structure. Yeah, there, there are lots of impacts uh, and I appreciate you providing an overview, obviously, whether it's on the cities and settlements, whether it's agriculture, whether it's just availability of water. I'm curious, just I wanna focus on the topic of, of meteorology and, and the services provided by that. Um, given that we're understanding in a better way the variability of weather and, and changing climates, you know, how do we how do we use that information to help either adapt to or mitigate some of these changes that we're seeing? Can you just speak a little bit to that? Yeah, climate information is um, being um, provided uh, in many parts of Africa and taking account 
the specific context of uh, different countries, different communities, all these contexts should be taken into account and to co-design first the products that uh, that will be needed for effective decision making. For example, my institution has, uh, and myself, including myself, we have been working for many years with farmers and also with fishermen to see how better we can provide climate information and how better we can disseminate this information and also in general, how better we can build early warning systems that could be considered as an effective and low-cost adaptation method. But for that also, we have some challenges related to data availability, some challenges related also to accuracy of climate models, weather models in tropical areas in general. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm wondering, can you give a few examples of your work with these uh, either farmers or fishermen? What what have they, what feedback have they provided or what, what have you learned as part of how best to provide that information? Yeah, actually, it was it was a mutual learning, and at the beginning, we thought that would be very difficult for them to understand the the, the climate variability of uh, uh, our region. But we were surprised that uh, they have also the uh, their own method of observing the variability, and uh, yeah, we learned a lot how they build their knowledge based on how the environment is changing, how the animals are reacting, for example, at the beginning of the season. And we, but what they acknowledge is that uh, the way they, the, the, the knowledge they had um, is challenged by the fact that there is a lot of variability. And we were there to tell them, we know that, and we have also other way to observe, to predict, and to forecast weather, to predict the climate. And we can work together and to see how we can also provide, because there are some specific contexts between, there are some specific contexts, you, you need to consider the gender issue, in providing the, the the information because they have different channels. For example, uh, we started providing information on mobile phone, but we realized that uh, most women have no mobile phone. If there is one in the house, it's for the, the man. And so we come up uh, find a way to provide information through the woman grouping they have. And we train some people in the community who will uh, contribute to, to disseminate the information to the wider community. Yeah, and also they, they understand that it's not accurate or 100%. 
they understand that it's not accurate about 100%. But, but we, we need to be transparent to say why that was not accurate and how we can better figure out. Yeah, it's it was a interesting uh, uh, activities. And at the end, what is important is that the the people who were applying, uh, who were taking decision based on the climate information, get a greater yield than others. Everyone wanted to get <laughs> the climate information. But also, we need to think that climate information is not is only one part of the of the puzzle. There are many other. Uh, uh, things that are determinant for 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 agriculture or for farming. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's so many so many different aspects. It's fascinating that that you've um were able to. I mean, it is exciting that you were able to learn and understand how best to disseminate that information to different community members. Um, and obviously the. I mean, I, I would assume, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I assume the more the more information, the better, just to that we can at least understand and just have more data to, to assess and evaluate. I'm just wondering how how has that happened over the last, you know, in your experience over the last 10, 20 years, how have, have there been effort? I assume there have been efforts to try to just generate more data so that people can kind of evaluate analysis. Is that is that kind of an area of focus for you or is that outside of, of the scope of the... Tremendous increase of of satellite data, but at the same time, in many parts of Africa, there is um, uh, a decline of um, observing systems, which will lead to uh, less accessibility of, of in-situ data. Because even we have satellite data, we need also to have in-situ data to validate the satellite data and also for some analysis in situ data as the best one. And also we need to build capacity to use available data, either satellite data or model output data. We are building, we are building capacities, but that is uh, really heterogeneous across Africa and across uh, West Africa particularly. Yeah, I see. Um, and so I want to shift uh, conversations a little bit. I think um, it is it's fascinating. I'm, I'm curious how you've incorporated this information and are you involved in the working group one for this past IPCC report, obviously, as well as the synthesis report. H how has that your work and this information kind of been incorporated into these findings and and maybe maybe they just start there. What what are some of the kind of key messages that you'd like think are important to convey to the audience about what we find in working group one and in, in the synthesis part, just at a high level. This is another aspect I'm working. I I started to work on different, but it's because I was part of IPCC and I see how the literature from African institution is institution is poor that we want to to enhance the capacity to to contribute to the scientific literature and also to 
to be able to to interact at national level, particularly for policies design, for example. As uh, key messages, um, what I can say first from the IPCC synthesis report, the actual trends are not compatible with sustainable development. Also, there are some effective adaptation in some region. Adaptation is still um, incremental and usually community-led and sectoral, particularly in Africa, and that we need to scale up adaptation because you are reaching a limit to adaptation for um, different ecosystems, for example. Our ability to adapt have been already reached actually in some ecosystem and some regions. And it is important, particularly in this decade, to accelerate action to adapt to climate change to close the existing adaptation gap. And finance is key. Because current financial flow on adaptation are insufficient to um, and hold back implementation of adaptation, actually. There is a small proportion of uh, globally tracked finance that has been targeting to adaptation compared to, to, to mitigation. And also there is an increased evidence of maladaptation, actions that are not unsustainable, for example, in agriculture, buildings, or even uh, sea level rise protection. And the first effort to reduce climate change risk is to reduce or avoid greenhouse gas emissions. And our effort to reduce greenhouse gas emission have been not enough. And we need to have the deep, rapid, and sustained uh, greenhouse gas emissions in all sectors in this decade. The global warming level of 1.5 could be uh, rich in the first half of the 20s, 30s, and we know that some risk is some risk will increase even with a global level of 1.5 degrees. So we are have a narrow window of opportunity, which is rapidly closing actually. And it will become more challenging, more challenging actually, actually uh, to adapt to climate change, particularly uh, if we reach high level temperature. And for that, scaling climate finance is crucial to climate resilient development, especially in developing countries where the finance gap and opportunities are the largest. Yeah, thank you. Um, that those are some 
very poignant messages. You the the word scaling came up a couple of times. You know, having to scale up some of these these factors. Can you just give an example? You you mentioned you you. I'm a little bit fascinated about this adaptation, and that it sounds like you're reaching, or in some cases, have already reached the upper limits of how to adapt to this changing climate. And so, and that is happening at the in some ways at the more at the communal communal distributed level. So can you give me a few examples of how adaptation has already happened and then what you think is a good way, like how do you scale ad ad adaptation? Is it, what does that mean to you? Is that more of a centralized government taking an approach? I just want to kind of explore that more. Yeah, I think we need to embrace a transformational adaptation at all levels from the government, government, civil society, including communities and also private sector. And for that, we need also to, to rethink how we consider development actually in our region. For example, in here in my country, we know that there is a lot of variability of rainfall and the soils also are tired. And the way we are approaching that is to to provide more and more um, fertilizer. But one way to to rethink perhaps agriculture is to go to agro ecological type of agriculture to see how we can work also on water governance because there is a competition, for example, between. Uh, agricultural needs, tourism needs, other needs of water. And that could that should be first at policy level, governmental level, and then at all levels, at national, local levels. So this is what I, it's an example of uh, scaling up uh, adaptation and having a, embracing a transformational adaptation. Yeah, that, that's an interesting example. Um, I'm curious, does, how I know you you said you you've engaged with community members, farmers, fishermen as part of your work to provide these climate services. How much I mean, imagine that you're you're working in a government function. How much do you engage with the actual policy or legislators, let's say, or elected officials who are responsible for at a national or state level responsible for setting these policies? Is that part of part of your department's role or is that kind of part of the conversation? Yeah, it's being part of the conversation. Um, I was involved in the development of Green Senegal Emergence Plan, which aims to consider development, taking account climate change issues and loss of biodiversity. And it was um, a multi-stakeholder discussions between government members, communities, and then also you realize that we need also to 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 increase climate literacy at all levels, not only at community level, but also at governmental level. And I would say it's just it's in infancy. We need to do more, but at least, yeah, there is a there is an increasing awareness. Also, but particularly in communities and in governmental level, I would say.
Yeah, I, I love that the, the concept of climate literacy and how to improve that. Um, you know, on one hand, you know, is it like, do people take classes about climate? Do people take, you know, is it just more literature, more resources available? How do we become more literate when it comes to climate? <laughs> yeah, I would think that there are many ways, but for example, uh, two days ago, I was invited in a workshop um, dedicated to, to lawyers and the subject of the topic of the workshop was um, um, the right to, to have a, a sustainable environment and vivable climate. And yeah, we had an interactions uh, between uh, lawyers, myself, I was there to give the context of climate change and to provide um, uh, scientific basis and also some communities who are facing the adverse effects. And I think that mutually we build, um, we contribute to build knowledge because I learned also from communities and from lawyers. And also I think I contributed to climate literacy for people who are there. This could be also um, uh, in schools or at university, perhaps, um, including a class or a, a course of, on climate change, even if the degree is not tied to, to climate. I mean, we need to build at all levels. We have many ways to do that, I think. Yeah, there, there are many ways and it's it's much needed. So I'm sure the lawyers and the community, community members appreciated your, your, your talk and your panel. Um, I'm just curious. So you, I know you mentioned we have uh, 1.5 degrees is kind of a, a critical threshold that we've all globally kind of identified of of trying to use that as an upper bound for how much greenhouse gases we emit into the atmosphere, and that we have a basically a, almost a seven year window until around roughly 2030 to be able to to cap that. So. I'm curious, over the next, from your perspective, in the next three, five, seven years, what would you like to see improve within the world of meteorology, whether it's at a global level within Senegal or at a more community level? What would you think in terms of, what would you like to see happen? What do you think are some key challenges moving forward in this, in this time period? IPCC is... Uh, has been assessing climate change uh, for 30 years now. And now it's established that human activities are responsible um, of the changes we are experiencing. At the beginning of IPCC, there was a focus on monitoring greenhouse gas emissions. But now there is an, but now we are already facing the adverse effects. It's a reality. And we are even experiencing loss and damages. 
and that will continue in the future because we know that there are unavoidable, unavoidable changes such as sea level rise. But the problem is how could we monitor losses and damages due to climate change? And also even how do we monitor impacts around the world? I would like to see the World Meteorological Organization helping perhaps others organization to build common metrics to monitor loss and damages and, and climate impacts. Okay, interesting. So uh, you mean losses and damages from, let's say, a storm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And so that would mean, I mean, there's a level of economics there that you need to kind of incorporate into the meteorological, I guess, how, how would that happen? I'm, I'm trying to grasp that. No, because I, you may have heard during the last uh, COP that loss and damages was part of the discussion for the first time in the official COP. And the IPCC has assets that we have already faced losses and damages in many parts of the world, including economic and non-economic uh, losses. But the problem, particularly in some regions, where there is lack of data of monitoring system is how to, to assess the losses and damages and how even to, to monitor the impacts of the losses damages. Another aspect also perhaps more relating to more uh, scientific research in my region, particularly the West African monsoon region, is that they still have a lot of divergence between model outputs. Even there is a lot of improvement from IR5 to IR6. We know that is due to partly to lack of data, but also to the way the physical processes are representing are represented in, in climate models. And we need more research also to improve the way that physical processes are represented in climate models related to convection, to aerosols, for example. So more research is needed in this area. Yeah, I'm, I'm visualizing kind of these three components that are interrelated and they're almost perpetuating themselves. You know, there, you mentioned there's, on the one hand, a need to increase data and increase information and granularity on climate, on weather, on losses and damages. Um, but that can really only happen with, you know, you said you mentioned financing, improved, you know, increased financing or scaling up financing. And so there's kind of like this perpetuating thing. We don't, we can't see the damages if we're not measuring them to justify that finance, but then we need the finance to be able to see, see these aspects. I don't know, is, am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah, that's true. And as you mentioned finance, I think also we need to scale up. I think I mentioned it, but we mentioned again, we need to scale up finance, particularly for adaptation in our region, but also for, for mitigation in our region, because even though the, the emission per capita, are, the emissions per capita are very low in our region, 
in Africa. Uh, let me see the statics. Yeah, it's, a, it's very low for them. In least developing country, it's less than two CO2 equivalent ton. So to, yes, less than 1.7 CO2 equivalent. And the, glo the global average is about seven CO2 equivalent. I mean, even though the emissions are very low right now, we know that we aspire to development. And we have also one of the highest rate of urbanization. And urbanization also, you know that with urbanization, there will be increase of, of emissions if you want to provide uh, um, city standards of living. And finance also is needed and technological transfer to shift from fossil fuel energy to renewable energy. And I think the opportunity are more in developing country, countries, but finance is needed, technological transfer is needed, and also international cooperation. Absolutely. And um, a lot to do in the next seven years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we need courage to do that. It's possible, but we need a lot of courage, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe that's the most critical importance, courage. Um, well, thank you very much for your courage uh, and for your time on the show. I think uh, I, I really appreciate your time and, and, and your efforts. everyone welcome back i hope you enjoyed the episode uh it was really interesting to understand what is happening uh, in west africa due to climate change uh the motivation to start exploring losses and damages associated with climate related events uh, and the need to scale up adaptation and financing obviously key key uh, priorities and so this kind of is the conclusion of the first part of, of the season uh, focusing on the physical science, and we're going to shift more towards adaptation, understanding how different um, policies or countries are taking steps to adapt, as well as what are some of the options provided by the IPCC's reports. In particular, the next episode, we're going to be focusing on how Pakistan has been starting to adapt to the significant impacts it's already facing due to climate change. So um, looking forward to next week. Have a, have a good week.